Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 93 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. Uh, This is Adam by himself, and I am recording this intro from my house simply because I forgot to grab Jill to do an intro for this episode before we left the office. Uh, So today's episode is an interview I did with Elizabeth Kostova. That name may sound familiar to you if you've ever heard of the book The Historian, which you probably have because it was wildly successful and an incredible book. Uh, that was her debut book, and she's also written The Swan Thieves. And this April, she has her latest book coming out called The Shadowland. Uh, I recorded this interview in person at the American Library Association uh, meetings in Atlanta, Georgia, a few weeks back. And this was one of those interviews where I try to really appreciate how awesome our job is in the moment. Um, Elizabeth is someone who is incredibly talented. I'm a huge fan of the historian. And so getting to speak with him was, or getting to speak with her was an incredible honor uh, and one that I definitely will remember for a very long time. She's incredibly intelligent and researches her books uh, to no end. It's a really, it was a joy to speak with her about these types of things. Uh, Again, if you're familiar with the historian, you know that it has a lot to do with Dracula and being a big fan of both that you know idea of Dracula, the book itself, and then everything that has come since that book. I spent some time chatting with her about that, amongst other things as well. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy this. Um, I do want to just point out, again, this was a live episode. We recorded it in a very large area with a lot of people around, so there might be some background noise. Um, bear, you know, bear with it if it gets a little hard to hear and just turn up the volume a little bit, but I promise you it will certainly be worth it. If you'd like to get a hold of Jill or I, you can do so via email by emailing us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. You can also find us on Twitter at probooknerds. Jill and I are the ones tweeting from that all the time, so you can interact with us there. Let us know what you're reading. Uh, let us know if you want some book recommendations, uh, all sorts of fun there. Uh, sorry for the delay in getting this out. And again, that's entirely my fault. I didn't uh, grab Jill when I was supposed to, so I'll take the blame on that. Um, but I promise it will have been worth the wait because this interview with Elizabeth Gustova is very enjoyable. So, all right, that's it. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day, uh, whenever it is that you're listening to this. And most importantly, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hi everyone, this is Adam from Team Overdrive, and today I'm joined by Elizabeth Kostova, who is best known as the author of the international bestseller, The Historian, as well as her follow-up novel, The Swan Thieves. She graduated from Yale and holds an MFA from the University of Michigan, where she won the Hopwood Award for the novel in progress. Her upcoming book, The Shadowland, comes out this year in April. Elizabeth, thank you so, time- <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So would you mind maybe giving our listeners a little preview into The Shadowland since it hasn't come out just yet? I would love to. Um, 
I, this is a book I worked on for about seven years. Mm -hmm. I'm very proud that it's finally coming out and really uh, learned a lot from writing it. And it, it is about Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. which is one of my big interests. Right. You know? Yeah. And just in a nutshell, I think what I'd love to tell readers about this book is that it's rooted in a lot of real East European history. Mm -hmm. And I think that... Um, Something I, something I love as a reader myself is to know that I'm engaged in reading a novel that has to do with real people's lives, mm -hmm. even if they've been reimagined, even if there's some speculation in mm -hmm. them about what might have happened. I always feel I learn a lot of history from mm -hmm. reading a carefully researched historical novel, and I, I like to think that my readers will have that experience with this. In The Shadowland, a young woman in her 20s, Alexandra, has come from the United States to Bulgaria mm -hmm. to teach, as people do sometimes in their 20s, go sure. overseas. Absolutely, yeah. And it's the best time to do it. Yeah, absolutely. So she finds herself in the capital city of Bulgaria, Sofia, and she's in Sofia for an hour before a very unexpected thing happens to her. Mm -hmm. She finds herself helping an elderly couple and their middle-aged son into a taxi cab, and she discovers too late when the cab is driven away that she's kept a piece of their luggage. And in this piece of luggage, she finds an urn of human ashes that has just uh, a label on it with a name in Cyrillic alphabet, which is is written right. in, in a version of the Cyrillic <laughs> alphabet, like sure. Russian, as you know. Mm -hmm. So she, um, she doesn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. She wants to do the right thing. She has no idea who that family are, right. where they've gone, and whose life they are <laughs> it's okay. they she's carrying. Yeah. So, so her, this book is really a journey into the past, and it goes back to, to about 1938, mm -hmm. before World War II and before the coming of the communist regime in Bulgaria. And you mentioned the whole, this is, you know, Eastern Europe is incredibly prevalent, it's the entire setting for this, and that comes from you spending some time growing up there, is that correct? Well, I didn't actually grow up there, but I was very fortunate. Um, I grew up in the U.S., mm -hmm. and I don't have any Slavic roots myself, <laughs> but... Um, my ha my father had a full right to Slovenia when I was seven, mm -hmm. and a lot of the historian came out of that childhood right, yeah. memory. Um, although we did not encounter any vampires. I was going to say I have trip. I have some no. questions about the historian no. yeah. a little bit. <laughs> no. um, so so I grew up very interested in Eastern Europe and in a family that had been there and lived there for a while. Mm -hmm. I'll even you know an American family. Yeah traveling there and then when I was um, 25 I went to Bulgaria but to uh, much more the communist mm -hmm. world that, um, that not the world that my character goes to sure and your novels you know, this far at least these these first three they all delve they dive into like you kind of mentioned multiple t periods of time and, and, and different time frames and you create these kind of sweeping interwoven narratives so from a writing standpoint, are these things that you plan out in advance and have a whole summary of? I can't, I can't imagine this is like a more of a, a pantser type of a writing situation for you. 
Would that be accurate? You know, it's always so interesting to me how every book um, writes itself in a different way, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of a, a lot of authors have um, find that their experience with each book is quite a bit different. Mm-hmm. And when I was working on the historian. I wrote my way into it about halfway in and then realized I was going to have to plot out the rest really carefully <laughs> because that book has six main characters and four timelines. Right. You know, I think that's what you're referring to. Yes. And with this book, for the first time I worked from a whole plot summary. Mm-hmm. It was it was loose and it changed a little along the way, mm-hmm. but I had a pretty good idea of where it was going mm-hmm. from the very beginning. and. Part of that is because I had a, a really unusual um, experience coming up with the idea for this, uh-huh. which was that I, and this sounds a little odd, but I woke up from a dream mm-hmm. in the early morning about eight years ago in which I had seen the opening scene of this book. Really? And I knew that it was the opening scene of a novel uh-huh. and that it took place in Bulgaria. And then I dreamed, I had dreamed sort of the middle journey of the book. There's mm-hmm. a lot of travel in this book. <laughs> and then the, the climax of the book, which is, um, which was very dramatic in my dream, too. Uh-huh. So I don't expect that ever to happen to me again <laughs> in my writing life, but it kind of came as a gift from a dream. So I, I have to ask, because I, I always have very vivid dreams, and then I'll wake up and be floored by them. Well, and watch f- out. You may find yourself writing novels. <laughs> I was going to say, my problem is a few hours later, I can't remember them all. So did you, was this one of those moments where you woke up and just wrote everything down? I did. It was um, one of those moments where you realize this is something, well, I realized it was my next novel. Uh-huh. Actually, it was that clear to me. Yeah. That, and so would you, moving forward, do you think you'd prefer kind of writing from a whole planned out summary? Would that be... I don't want to say easier, because writing a novel is not easy regardless, but would that be something how you think you'll write moving forward? You know, I think it depends so much on the novel. Sure. There are some novels that do better when you, um, at least in my experience, I think it's it's different for every writer, but Mm -hmm. in my experience, you often do better with a psychological novel or one that's based on voice. Mm -hmm. It's very helpful just to write your way into those voices. Sure. But... I think my next novel will be very plotted, and I'm, I'm really interested in plotting it out mm-hmm. um, very in great detail, just probably just to see what that's like, mm-hmm. to get to that level of detail yeah. ahead of time. Okay. And so your previous novel, Swan Thieves, it's a story told through obsession and expression through the life of a painter, and, and I've read some quotes where you, you said that you're fascinated by the art art in general and how they can express a world through color and through different palettes and on a canvas. I feel the same way about authors. First, I'm always impressed by how you can take either a fictional world from scratch or you can take the existing world and tell your own story through it. So from your mind, do you think that those professions are similar, a painter and a writer from the, you know, creating something from nothing kind of a standpoint? There are a lot of parallels, and I I suppose that's one reason writers and painters or other visual artists have often been drawn to each other's work or collaborated over the millennia, probably. But I think I also just have a lot of painter in me. Yeah. I think the idea of being able to work with color um, and convey either something from the world or something from imagination in this direct visual way is really fascinating to me and as writers we end up of course having to 
put what's visual through a whole prism yeah. of words, mm -hmm. which is, is really pretty challenging. Um, painters obviously have other challenges that are equally enormous, sure. but I do really love painting. And I that book for me was, in a lot of ways, a big excuse to go to museums. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> That's as good a reason as any, yeah. I, I have to say, I, I will openly admit my outward jealousy when I see painters or artists of any kind. I spoke with a, an illustrator earlier today and it's just, that's one of those things where you see someone doing it and I'm just like, I, I could do the whole Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours thing and still not be an expert at that. It's just... I feel the same way. Yeah, sometimes I just use... avid. It's, you know, art needs spectators. Yes. So <laughs> I think that we are, you know, we're, we're part of art too, and we, but we just appreciate it this much. I share your feeling oh, about that. That might be my favorite quote ever, <laughs> art needs spectators. Um, okay, I will get yelled at by both coworkers and listeners if I don't talk to you about the historian. So if you don't mind, I have a few questions for you about that. Of course. So... I'm curious for you, because I have, I have thoughts on Dracula, but what is it about you that you find so fascinating about the character of the story, everything about Dracula, and maybe just the kind of history of the character? Well, I think uh, a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. For one thing, um, Dracula is, in a, in a very nice way, was part of my childhood. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember pulling Bram Stoker's Dracula off my parents' bookshelf and reading it at a pretty young age, maybe eight or nine, and probably not understanding half sure. of it. But I was fascinated by it, and of course, um, I don't know if you've read it yourself. I have. But you have. Okay, yes. good. So you know, it's a truly creepy book. Yeah, Even it is. after more than a century, it is, it is uh, well... 120 years now, I mm -hmm. think. It's a very, very creepy book. Mm -hmm. And I was fascinated by it for that reason. Yeah. And then when I got a little bit older and I learned about um, the historical Dracula, mm -hmm. who of course was not a vampire, yes, um, but was not a particularly pleasant not a great, Not a great either. guy. <laughs> um, although he has his apologist in mm -hmm. Eastern Europe. It's interesting. <laughs> um, but he is a very, very interesting character, mm -hmm. a figure, a real figure in his own right. And he, um, along the way, I realized that the uh, that my memories of being in Eastern Europe as a child. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that I lived in Slovenia with my family yeah. when my father taught there. Were all mixed up with Dracula because while we were traveling around during that time, my father told his children stories about Dracula mm -hmm. that were wonderful, um, sort of mildly creepy. They were watered down. Sure, absolutely. But they came from the films in the 30s and 40s that he had grown up watching. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we would be in some amazing place in a castle in Slovenia and we'd all sit down tired and someone would say, Dad, tell us a Dracula story. <laughs> so he spun these out, as parents do, mm -hmm. many episodes. Sure. So when I had the idea for the historian, I had very much a vision of a father telling a daughter stories about Dracula. But of course, for a novel, mm -hmm. you really have to have a potent question behind yes. it, a powerful reason for the book to exist. So my question was, 
why would a father be telling stories right. about Dracula? There had to be some bigger reason than entertaining bored children. Yeah. <laughs> and and then I had the idea that perhaps Dracula was listening. Mm-hmm. So that was how that story came to be. I rarely get the chance to talk to a... I wouldn't call you a Dracula expert. I think that's okay and safe to call it. I have this belief. Obviously, the character, like you said, very creepy, very evil. I always tell people, I think he's one of the loneliest characters in the history of literature. And its I don't want to say I'm sympathetic towards him, but am I, am I wrong to think that? I just think he's... This, it, his story to me is so sad, just as a character. And people always stare at me sideways, like, what are you talking about? But am I, do I at least have a foot to stand on for this a little bit? I think that's a fascinating and wonderful idea, theory. And I, I know now you mean the supernatural Dracula. Yeah, yes, I do. literature yeah. and film. Correct. But he, that's a lovely idea, I think, because when, when you think about outliving all of your acquaintances mm-hmm. by... 600 years, yeah. yes, that does seem a little wrong to me. And of course, in the Bram Stoker story, well, we shouldn't do any plot spoilers for people who are still <laughs> looking forward to reading it, but um, that is a particular outcome, let's say. But we know that Dracula, as a character, never seems to die in a spirit no way. So right. he's got an interesting, ongoing life mm-hmm. as a character that's very vital. But I agree with you, that seems like a really lonely. You just made my day. Yeah. I can't wait to... I'm no, gonna, that, seems, that seems very, very smart to me. I'm going to puff my chest out a little bit next time <laughs> I talk about that. Um, so Overdrive is a library company, and we're at a library conference. And I know that you have a rich history with libraries yourself, correct? You have, I believe your mother was a librarian, is that correct? Yeah, it really runs in my family. Yeah, so do you have any, just maybe a quick thought or anything on the importance of libraries? Just something that you feel why they're so great, such an important part of our community. Well, I do, very much, and I, I think um, I shared this at the panel today, too, and it's it's hard for me to overestimate the importance of libraries, mm-hmm. I think, to most writers and their childhoods, and what makes us want to become writers, but also to our, our whole culture, mm-hmm. and it seems to me that you know, we hear a lot about the national parks as America's greatest idea. Yeah. And they are a really great idea. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I love them, and I spend a lot of time enjoying them, appreciating them. But I think that our library system, especially our public libraries, and that's probably America's other greatest idea. I would agree. They really, libraries have done so much for so many people. Um, they, in the public library system, they do it um, regardless of who walks in their doors. Yes. And that is a very powerful thing, and I think we need it more than ever. Mm-hmm. I think it's a safeguard of our democracy in many ways. And it helps build us all into great citizens to have a place to go where we can get free education. But I also think it's just a joy. I mean, anyone who's ever been a kid in a library knows it's like being, if you like to read, or you learn to read there, it's like being a kid in a candy shop. So I am so grateful as a writer to libraries, Mm -hmm. and including school libraries, including the university libraries I worked in. And as you know, the historian is kind of a tribute to libraries. 
was going to say, there's a, um, oh, there's a Ray, ba- Ray Bradbury quote. He says, libraries raised me. And that's kind of true for you as well. It's, oh, it's very much false in the world. So what, okay, this is a off-the-wall kind of a question, but what books do you think we would find in Dracula's library? Well, if you turn to page 397, I'm not getting the page right, but anyway, <laughs> far off, way down the line in the historian, there are a lot of books mm-hmm. um, named there. Yeah. So perhaps I should not. That's totally that. fair. But um, I, I'll just say that I did imagine that in that Dracula's library, among other books, would contain a lot of history mm-hmm. because he li- has lived through the ages. Mm-hmm. Um, for your personal library, do you have any treasured books or anything that you're really proud of in your own personal collection? Way too many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I definitely have a book problem. I'll just say that right here on the podcast. That's understandable. So, so. You're in a you're in you're in a safe place to talk about that. Thank you. Yeah. It's pretty severe. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any? But are there any like older books or anything that you are really kind of proud of? Like for example, I um my I didn't I never knew this. My grandmother, who I didn't really get to meet, I never knew that she had this collection of these really old like hundred year old Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Ibsen's, and I have always loved Russian literature. And so when I saw those, I was like. Is anyone claiming these? Because I ended up taking them. So they're, they're, and they're just. There's nothing special about like the, uh, the, the volume or anything. It's just that they were hers and they're very old. So like, do you have anything like that in your collection? Oh, I, I love the sound of, of that, and I can, I can guess what you would grab if there were a fire. Yeah, I said that <laughs> yeah. would be the first thing. There, I do have things like that. I know just what you mean. I have um, books that belong to my grandparents mm-hmm. and to my great grandmother. Um, including a copy of my of her favorite novel, The Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. Oh, that's amazing. It's a very beautiful novel. And it's, I, I think it, if I had to choose one novel, that might be my favorite, along with Anna Karenina. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. and, um, but I have her copy, my great-grandmother's copy, um, which she acquired in around 1900. Oh, that's amazing. And so um, I do have some things like mm-hmm. that. I have um, I have my brother's Karamazov right next to my grandmother's brother's Karamazov, oh, and it's like my favorite thing in my entire house. So, um, towards the end of our podcast, we like to ask nine just kind of rapid-fire, light-hearted questions. These are easy, I promise. Um, what's the last book you finished? Reading or writing? Reading. <laughs> reading, sorry. What's the last book you finished reading? <laughs> um, I just finished reading... A very wonderful mystery by the Irish mystery writer Tana French. Yeah. Um, and it, it's her first book. It's called In the Woods. Mm-hmm. It's a very dark book, very beautifully written. And she shows in it how fantastically plot and descriptive writing can be combined. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I can't say anything more about it because it would really spoil the book. That's okay. But I, I hope your readers say Perfect. Uh, do you have a favorite place to read? Well, you know, this is going to sound um, just like I made it up for a podcast that's partly about audiobooks. My favorite place to read, not my favorite place to be, mm-hmm. my favorite place to read is in my car. Oh, nice. Because I do about 75% of my reading through audiobooks. Yeah. Um, sometimes on trips, uh, driving around, sometimes just running errands. Um, and you know, I I always know I'm reading a really fantastic book when I find myself 
needing to go to the grocery store yep. more often. <laughs> you probably have that experience. Or not, or not minding traffic right. quite as much. Yeah. Or not minding traffic or making up errands. So mm-hmm. it's, I really appreciate audiobooks so That's much. A, it's like being a child and being read to kind of on demand. That's a great answer. No one said that yet. That's a great answer. I like that. Um, do you have a guilty pleasure? Like I always tell people mine is... I post so many pictures of my dogs on social media, like way too many. So do you have anything that you would be like, I should probably not do this quite as often? Well, apart from chocolate, let's not count chocolate. (laughs) No, I don't want to count that. Oh, then then, then that would be mine too. Right, let's not go there. Well, chocolate for sure. But um, one of my guilty pleasures is starting the day, even if I have a very big work day ahead of me, and I've had some really big ones lately because I have a book coming out, and there's a lot of work that goes into that besides writing Mm -hmm. a book, as you know. So one of my guilty pleasures is when I'm done with, um, you know, getting kids off to school and washing dishes and all that stuff, sometimes I catch 30 minutes of reading before the day starts. I like that. And it feels like a little bit of vacation. Mm -hmm. I have to get to work pretty fast after that but <laughs> it's a great you know it's it's I'm fortunate to work from home so I can do that without having anybody see me do that that's wonderful but that is a serious guilty pleasure nice. um, do you have one place that you'd like to travel that you haven't been to yet I'd love to go to Finland nice uh, do you have a favorite holiday well Halloween that's <laughs> you and me both uh, do you have a favorite movie Oh, that is a really hard one. This is one that always, I feel bad asking people, because I don't know that I would be able to answer it either. It is is hard to choose. Um, I have, my taste ranges around quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a very serious weakness for Groundhog Day. Oh, that's, I'm perfectly okay with that answer. But I also have a serious weakness for Ingmar Bergman. Mm -hmm. And I just saw an amazing documentary called Salt of the Earth. Okay. That is about, it's about, um... Brazilian photographer, and it's a documentary. So I'm sorry, probably everybody gives you three or four. That's okay. So I, they do. Um, are you a cat person or a dog person? Well, I'm definitely a cat person. Although The Shadowland, my new novel, has as its main character a dog mm-hmm. who is, is my dog, and but he's a little better behaved in the novel. <laughs> but but he's a, a beautiful and protective and. Um, strong dog with a lot of personality so I didn't think I was a dog person but writing this book made me observe him Um, I think you already answered this but do you have a favorite food? oh I did answer that but let me say something healthier (laughs) (laughs) I really love this uh, incredible Bulgarian summer dish very simple I'll give you the recipe because it goes with the historian actually um, some of the characters eat it in the historian for the historian I I even did some cooking for research. Nice. Because there's a lot. In fact, yeah. a friend of mine said, gosh, there's a lot of food in that book, isn't there? <laughs> so um, it's sort of like tzatziki. Okay. Like Greek yes. yogurt sauce. So good. So good. But it's a soup. Okay. And you take very good yogurt, mm-hmm. plain yogurt, you put in ice water and stir it until you get a soup uh-huh. broth consistency. And you put in enough yogurt to lose you uh, I'm sorry enough garlic to lose all your best friends <laughs> and chopped walnuts chopped dill and chopped cucumber and a little bit of olive oil and salt and you stir it up that sounds delicious. and that is the best summer dish I know and much better for you than chocolate that sounds wonderful yeah. I'm gonna try that yeah. um, and then the last one if you could have dinner with one person alive or dead who would you choose 
Long silence. I know, I'm sorry. Okay. I usually cop out by telling people a couple of mine. Like, I would do Jim Henson or Dr. Seuss. I'm a child at heart. So those oh, are the two that I always go with. wonderful answers. Well, some of the people I have found most interesting in history and in literature are not necessarily people you'd want to have lunch with that, or dinner. <laughs> Was it dinner? D- either, dinner. either meal, sure. But um, I would love to be at a dinner party, maybe not alone with him, but at a dinner party where with Henry James to hear him holding forth to other people. Sure. Kind of like a fly on the wall sort of a situation. Fly on the wall, yeah. That's perfect. All right, our last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from reading your books? Well, I think deep down, I hope that readers take away an increased interest in history, mm-hmm. an increased love of learning about history, because to me, history is the, it's our story. Yeah. It's the great human story. There's almost no uh, limits to its depth and complexity, and we can learn a tremendous amount from it. You know, that old cliche, if you don't study history, you are doomed to repeat it. But I think it's a lot more than that, too. It tells us a lot about who we are in many, many, many different cultures and who we have, have been. And it's always very sad to me that history is sometimes made really dry in school. Yes. I think that's gotten better yeah. since I was a kid 40 years ago. But it should never be the dullest subject on anybody's schedule. <laughs> I would agree. It's it's our living um, past. And I always think about how every one of us and every artifact around us comes out of history. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what I try to convey um, in in my books, that wherever you find yourself, you are surrounded by it. And and I try to show that through my characters and what they experience. That's perfect. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.